So whenever someone asks me, do you want the good news first or the bad news? I always opt for the bad. I imagine this probably reflects some deep psychological disorder, but I know I'm not the only one. The truth is, I find it hard to hear the good news until I know what the bad news is, what the challenges are, what damage has been done. So I'm going to start this morning with some bad news. We'll have some good news, some incredibly good news in just a little bit. But before we get there, we need to start with the bad. And the bad news is this. The church is in trouble. Not our church necessarily, but the church at large around the world and particularly here in North America. Over the last few years, the evangelical world has been rocked by scandal after scandal. Some of our most beloved and respected leaders have given in to sexual sin or abused their power in incredibly destructive ways. The list is long, and it includes men such as Bill Hybels, James McDonald, Ravi Zacharias, and Mark Driscoll. And that's not to mention pastors of smaller churches in far-flung places whose names don't make it into the national media. These scandals, they've led to a justified crisis of confidence in church leadership. And that extends beyond the office of pastor. It's a crisis of confidence in the church itself. People are rightly asking, can we trust what the church is teaching if the leaders don't even seem to believe it? But that's only one of the crises facing the church today. The other is connected in some ways to the pandemic. And it's a crisis of relevance. Last year, between March and June, most churches across the country, including our own, stopped worshiping in person and switched to online streaming services instead. Now, I continue to believe that this was the right decision given the information we had at the time, but it was not without cost. For three months, we convened remotely. We started going to church in our pajamas with a cup of coffee swaddled by our easy chairs. It's pretty nice. And the best thing of all, the best thing of all was that you could fast forward through the parts you didn't like. <laughs> now that's guilty laughter I'm hearing, I know. Bored by the sermon? Skip it. Don't like that song? Skip it. The gathered worship of God's people, it became a consumable good, easily altered to fit our individual tastes. Now, of course, this didn't happen out of the blue. The trend toward treating corporate worship as a consumer good began long before the pandemic hit. The shift to streaming simply confirmed the trajectory and revealed what was already at work. The gathered worship of the people of God it's become something for us to consume on our own terms in our own time. Now here's the problem with this. When worship is something you fit into an already busy life on your own particular terms, then Jesus eventually becomes the God you squeeze in only when you find him to be convenient. Now I want to pause here and clarify something. I realize that many of you are watching this from home or on the road. And you've tuned in because you simply can't be here for health reasons or because you're traveling or because the assisted living facility where you live is on lockdown. Now, I understand that. 
And I am so grateful that we have the capacity to stream and to post our services because it means that more and more folks have access to them. What I'm speaking to here isn't the legitimate use of technology that enables us to connect uh, when the means to be together physically have been removed from us. I'm speaking to a deeper reality, to a disposition. A disposition that treats the common life of the church as yet one more option on the extensive menu of our busy lives. For so many, the life of the church and all that goes with it has become a good to consume rather than a gift to receive. The church is in trouble. There's a crisis of confidence in the church because so many of our leaders have lost their way and shamed the name of Jesus. There's also a crisis of relevance in a consumable world where individual preferences define reality. The church is struggling to compete for our attention. Now these crises, they're symptomatic of something deeper. I think we've forgotten who and what the church is. And I think we've lost sight of why the church is here in the first place. So that's the bad news in a nutshell. And my goal for us this fall, my goal is to lead us into scripture so that we can rediscover the church. Over the next few months in our preaching series, Why Church? We will be exploring God's purpose for his people. And my hope is that we will come to see the church as God's gift, not just to us, but to the world that he made. The world for which his son bled and died and is working right now to redeem. And my longing is that as we do this, we'll be inspired and we'll be encouraged to commit ourselves anew to life together in this miraculous body of Christ. So we're gonna begin this journey of rediscovery today by talking about the kingdom of God. Now Jesus talks about the kingdom a lot. The very first words he utters in public in the gospel of Mark are these, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The arrival of the son of God marks the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth and it requires a response from us. Matthew's gospel is filled with the language of the kingdom. Who is it that the wise men seek in chapter two? Well, they seek the king of the Jews. In his very first sermon in chapter four, what does Jesus say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus promise to the poor in spirit? That the kingdom of heaven will be theirs. When he teaches the disciples to pray, what's the first petition he gives to them? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Then later in Matthew, Jesus talks about the kingdom in a sequence of parables. I read two of these just a few moments ago from Matthew 13. And in them, Jesus describes the kingdom as a treasure hidden in a field and as a pearl of extraordinary value. His point is clear. The kingdom of God is the greatest treasure you can ever find. It's the most valuable thing you can possess and the best gift you'll ever 
receive. So whatever you do, seek it, find it, and hold on to it. But what exactly is the kingdom? And how do we participate in it? Well, I want to give you just a simple definition. And it's this, the kingdom of God is present wherever God's people come under his rule. The kingdom of God is present wherever God's people come under his rule. It's not a place so much as it is a people, a community who have been redeemed and transformed by Jesus. Now the hope of the kingdom began with a promise that God made to Moses in Exodus 19, which we read just a few moments ago. Having gathered his people before him at Mount Sinai, God said to them, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Unfortunately, the generation that heard these words didn't obey them. They grumbled, they argued, they ultimately rebelled. But God stayed true to his promise to build the kingdom. Roughly 500 years later, God returned to this promise in 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 7, when he promised David, the king of Israel, that he would establish his house and his kingdom forever. And that one of his descendants would reign over his people into eternity. Now that promise, it sustained God's people through a thousand years of ungodly rule, exile, and oppression. And it was in fulfillment of this promise that Jesus came at long last. So when Jesus says that the kingdom is at hand, he is claiming to be the promised son of David who's come to establish the eternal kingdom of God and raise up on earth a kingdom of priests just as God promised to Moses all those many, many, many years before. How Jesus goes about doing this, though, is completely shocking. Instead of raising an army and ousting the Romans, He raises up 12 disciples who cast out demons and disease. Instead of killing his enemies, he allows himself to be killed on a cross. Instead of conquering Jerusalem, he conquers death. And instead of claiming an earthly throne, God the Father gives to him the throne of heaven from which he rules over all things in heaven and on earth. And then, instead of establishing a government, which is what we expect kings to do, he establishes the church. And he establishes the church to be his kingdom outpost here on earth. He commissions God's people once again to be a kingdom of priests, to bring the blessing of God to every corner of the world through proclaiming the good news of salvation. Now at this time, Jesus promised his people that one day he will return in order to bring creation more fully and gloriously under his reign forever. But for now, as we wait for his return, the glory and the grace and the goodness of his kingdom, these things spill out into the world through us. Through us. Jesus reigns in the heavens. He also reigns in the hearts of his people. And wherever he reigns, there's the kingdom. The kingdom of God is here with us. Wherever we are and with whomever we gather because we are servants of the king. Why do we need the church? 
Because it's the, it is only in the church and through the church that eternity breaks into history. That the gracious and glorious reign of Jesus can be seen and experienced and salvation found here and now. You know, we're living through a strange and difficult time. The pandemic has cast a pall over everything. It's dumped a vast new set of problems on society and also exposed social and cultural disease that had been lurking in the shadows for a long time before. Our society is divided by religion, by politics, by race, and by class. We're engaged in a running battle over the nature of truth and reality. We no longer know whom to trust or who our allies are. Almost everyone I know is living with an undercurrent of anger or irritability that regularly overrides their ability to think clearly or to live graciously. We've lost our way in the world and what we need is not for the pandemic to be over. As nice as that would be, what we need is a fresh dose of eternal reality. The good news that this is not all there is, that salvation can be found in Jesus Christ, and that we have so much more to hope for than a return to something we think of as normal. That eternal reality can only be found in the life of the church. The church has been entrusted with the message of salvation that explains how the world is broken, why we're estranged from God, and how God himself has provided a path to healing and wholeness through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. The church is the only community indwelt by the spirit of God himself who transforms us and empowers us to live as redeemed and reconciled people. It's the only society on earth where political, racial, and social divisions can be bridged or abolished. The church is the only gathering where true worship takes place as God's people come together in his name. And the church is the one place, it's the one place where we can hope to discern what is truly true as we gather under the wisdom and authority of scripture. The church is the only place that has the, the hope that our world so desperately needs. Why church? Because this is where the kingdom of God is present. Our lives depend on it. The world needs it. As John Stott wrote in one of his last books, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It's not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. The church is God's chosen instrument for changing the world, and that's why we need it. Several weeks ago, a photographer working for Reuters captured a magical image on the tarmac of a military airport in Belgium. It showed a trio of Afghans who had been airlifted out of the carnage of Kabul. There's a woman covered from head to toe in a burqa. There's a bearded man and a young girl. The adults are weary, but the girl is skipping. 
She's wearing bright yellow pants and she's carrying a silver sequined purse in her outstretched arms. Both of her feet are off the ground and a broad smile stretches across her face which is turned up to the sky above. It's an incredible picture of true and untrammeled joy in the midst of tragedy. And it's an image that I think captures the essence of the life of the church amidst the ruins of the world. Hours before, just hours before, this little girl had been standing in hell. But here she is skipping with joy because she knows she's been rescued. I know that you all are tired, I am too. I know that some of you are discouraged As a friend said to me the other day, when are we going to get some good news? The last 18 months have been hard and there's no end in sight. But you know, we have a choice as to how we're going to live. We can let the sorrow and the ugliness and the bitterness that surrounds us shape the way we live. Or we can let the King of Kings and Lord of Lords define who we are. We can acknowledge the brokenness and then still skip for joy because of what the Lord has done for us. And we can do this together as those who've been joined into the kingdom of God. As the author of the letter to the Hebrews writes, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord God, in this broken world, may we learn to skip for joy. Not because we are ignorant of the brokenness around us and within us, but because we know the deeper truth of salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ. May we, the rescued and the redeemed, be a joyful outpost of your kingdom in this place. Would your spirit fill us and equip us to be kingdom people. Shine brightly through our life together and be honored in this place as we seek to be your church in this community. We pray this for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.